This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to another episode of Lens Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we watch something new in cinemas and, or on streaming services and compare and contrast it to films from days gone by. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film blogger. My blog is called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name is Stephen Cook, and I'm a culture writer with the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. Now, this is the third episode of an ongoing series we call Off the Shelf, where Stephen and I choose films from each other's libraries that we haven't seen. It's a random selection of films that at least one of us recommends going as far back as 1933 and as recently as 2008. Welcome to a chat about six films from our libraries coming up next on Lends Me Your Ears. Hi, and welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears, the film podcast that traditionally takes a look at something new in theaters or on streaming services and then compares it to films from days gone by. But today we're just kind of doing the days gone by thing. Uh, this is uh, our third show, what we've dubbed Off the Shelf, where basically uh, Karsten and I submit uh, lists of uh, DVDs on our to-watch piles and uh, decide uh, which titles we would like to catch up on. And it basically justifies our insatiable need to have a physical library of films on <laughs> DVD or any other kind I don't, of media. I don't need justification, <laughs> but sure, why not? <laughs> well, some, sometimes you need a little motivation to, to pull those discs off the pile and pop them in the machine. And, and uh, I'm glad we did. This is a fun and, uh, and often emotional batch of films uh, on a variety of topics. And uh, I'm, I'm, I really enjoyed uh, watching Karsten's suggestions. I enjoyed catching up with uh, the films that I uh, pulled from my pile. And it's, uh, it's a pretty varied bunch. I don't even know if you could find much of a connection between any of these. <laughs> so uh, maybe, maybe our last two in our third segment, uh, there's a slight connection involving law enforcement. But I think, uh, I think it's fairly random. And uh, and six very interesting, unique, and enjoyable films. And uh, to start off with, I pulled a film called The Story of Temple Drake. And this is a film that is not terribly well-known, but was very notorious in the day. It's from the pre-code era uh, of the early 1930s, which is basically the, the period sandwiched between the introduction of the talking picture and uh, late or mid-1934, when the production code, which had already been effect, in effect in Hollywood to some degree, um, uh, really got enforced uh, with vigor by the uh, studios because of films like the story of Temple Drake that uh, the uh, the powers that be, the League of Decency, the Catholic Church, all these uh, groups that felt uh, their need to keep an eye on society and, and um, you know, clamp down on society mores, uh, they felt that uh, it was their duty to, to clean up Hollywood. And the studios, of course, not wanting to, A, lose money at the box office by having the Catholic Church say, don't go to any Hollywood movies or, or, or things along that line, uh, and not wanting their films being routinely censored on a state-by-state -state basis, they complied. And in, in around late July, August of 1934, um, this uh, code, which uh, had already been drawn up, by the Hayes office, which was overseeing Hollywood production, uh, basically brought in this code, which had a long list of, uh, of requirements. Uh, you, for example, you could not show law enforcement in a bad light. You couldn't have any films about crooked cops. You could not, um, show certain levels of violence. No blood could be shown, um, as had been in some of the earlier films. Like if you watch public enemy with Jimmy Cagney, for example, um, 
certainly uh, no uh, lascivious behavior, uh, no portrayals of um, any sort of LGBTQ content because there was some, uh, for better or for worse, in some of these films, uh, either implied or, or kind of overt, depending on what film you see, uh, and 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 on and on. Many, many uh, moral requirements. Um, no miscegenation. In other words, no uh, relationships between uh, people of color and, say, white uh, characters. Uh, that had to be kept uh, on the strictly uh, on the down low and uh, and on and on there was there's this long list of things that just could not be done and uh, temple drake was uh, was a key factor in in that process because it was so outrageous and it was um uh ticking off so many of those boxes um that would later be enforced uh, after the code and as a result because it couldn't really be cut because of the subject matter uh it basically went back on the shelf at paramount and and was not uh was not brought out uh for redistribution it did not really show up on television and uh and because paramount was not that interested in its back catalog uh, titles that didn't necessarily have a big star like say uh, marlena dietrich or cary grant uh that uh, the film kind of went into a sort of limbo of sorts and then eventually it got revived um and on the classic film fest circuit uh you could get a gray market copy as i did many years ago like a kind of a bootleg dvd probably recorded off TCM or something like that. And then uh, now we have a beautiful uh, Criterion Collection restored edition that uh, brings the film back in all its lurid glory. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and it's, you know, it's, I will say it is a mixed bag story-wise because it's it's some people, even though it was from 1933, some people are probably going to find this story line offensive. It's, it's certainly not what you're used to from a classic film, especially if you're used to watching the sort of post-34 films. That are much more cleaned up and and sex is very much barely implied you know they two couples going to embrace and they cut to a windstorm or the, the rain falling outside or something like that but this this one is much more explicit in what's going on in the film and basically yeah. oh do you want yeah. to go into the plot well i could talk a little bit about the plot for sure, sure. it stars miriam hopkins who's a terrific actor who um you know, was one of the big stars of the 30s and into the 40s, uh, had a famous rivalry with Betty Davis. They even appeared in a few films together that kind of presaged the Betty Davis-Joan uh, Crawford rivalry, which uh, became probably better known due to whatever happened to Baby Jane. Um, very versatile actress. She was also in um, uh, the first sound version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with uh, Frederick March, another film that uh, fell prey to the code, although it was popular enough that it came out in a butchered form after the fact with much uh, material cut out of it. And, uh, you know, she could she could play uh, likable characters, attractive characters. She could also play despicable characters. She had a lot of range and uh, a lot of spirit and a lot of personality. And if, uh, if you have TCM uh, and can see some of her films, they show up with uh, quite, quite a bit of regularity, um, and I recommend tracking them down. But here, she plays Temple Drake. She is the spoiled granddaughter of a town judge in a small town in the South. Um, and the story is based on Sanctuary, a novel by William Faulkner, which uh, was one of those books they say cannot be filmed because of its... Uh, because of its subject matter. Uh, but uh, Paramount went ahead and made it anyway uh, against the um, against the wishes of the Hayes office. They went they went ahead and made it and uh, changed the title. But of course, everybody knew what it was about and the book it was based on. And she's basically, uh, you know, she's she's a, she likes to get her kicks sort of leading boys on. She's not I mean, she's not a she's probably late teens, early 20s, something like that, I guess. And and college age i suppose and she's kind of famous for uh being a being a bit of a tease and 
you know, leading boys down the garden path kind of thing and then shutting them down at the last minute. And, you know, she kind of gets her comeuppance when she falls into the hands of a, of a gangster named Trigger, uh, <laughs> which is, a, 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 you know, a loaded Freudian um, phrase right there, played by Jack LaRue with uh, kind of heavy-lidded eyes and intense close-ups. And, and, uh, and also, uh, if, if you know the book, uh, which is a little more explicit, th- there's some implication that he's also kind of... Um, uh, impotent, which is not so much uh, played out here, but uh, but she's definitely the talk of the town. And there's lots of references to her reputation. Like at one point, uh, you know, the, there's a couple of the servants in her her grandfather's household talking about Temple's reputation and the gossip, and you know, the saying that he'd know a lot more about his granddaughter if he did her laundry, uh, because she often comes home with ripped clothes and that kind of thing. And um, at one point, uh, the aunt of a young man that uh, her grandfather wishes she would um, date and potentially marry, says, uh, there's a wild streak in them, uh, meaning the Drake family. There's something bad in her, something wrong. There's not one of them that's had it that didn't wind up in the gutter. If I was in the, if I was the old judge, I'd marry her off quick. And, uh, and that's, um, <laughs> that's kind of how the whole town feels about her. They feel like she's somebody who needs to be tamed and needs to be corralled. And, and she wants to be independent and, and, uh, and free and uh, things go very very dark uh after a party where she gets in an accident and again falls into the hands of trigger the gangster and that's kind of that's kind of the the wrap-up of, of the film and then it just it gets even more lurid and perverse after that <laughs> oh yeah and this is a film from your library we should make uh, yes. that explicit that you <laughs> suggested that and i had not seen or actually even heard of so i was really glad to be introduced to it and especially a film that is as controversial as this and and subversive in so many ways uh and i was quite happy to watch it now uh it is certainly very well made and interesting it it uh it has a really interesting cast and and you know and I can understand it. what was what was helpful also for me was to watch the extra bonus features on this Criterion Edition uh, DVD because or Blu-ray, I guess, because, uh, you know, there was lots of sort of deconstructing what was going on with with a Temple Drake in the film, the Marion Hopkins character. Now, yeah, there th- that pre-code suggestiveness that you talked about is definitely something to see, but it's hard to ignore that there's a morality tale kind of in here. In oh, there for sure. There's a promiscuous girl who becomes the the mall of a of a gangster and the fallen woman and the implication that she sort of brought this on herself. There's some of that kind of kind of thing going on. But, um, you know, also there's a lot of sympathy for her because she's a victim of sexual violence and she chooses how and when to free herself. So she is using some of her smarts and will to get out of that situation and choosing what she's going to talk about and what she's going to share. There's there's a bit of a rape revenge element going on that we're seeing a lot of in cinema these days with Promising Young Woman. And there's a Irish film, Rose Plays Julie, that I recently saw that's terrific. Um, uh, a plug. It's actually at uh, Carbon Arc Cinema right now. Oh, that's now. right. I saw it in the uh, list. Yeah, it's it's amazing. So, uh, so and there's also some class criticism going on here because the upper oh, class <laughs> is hypocritical because they're enjoying the booze that's provided by the bootleggers during a time of prohibition. Um, and of course, the men are depicted as all sort of animals and and uh, you know, and it's it's really the sort of two sides of the same coin. Um, and then it becomes a courtroom drama in the final 20 minutes where Temple's story comes out on the stand. She's basically bullied into telling her story for God and family and community, which, 
Yeah, that's, I think, the part of the film I had the most trouble with. Um, she, I mean, if she is the eventual hero of the story, but it's, it's still a deeply patriarchal kind oh, of story. very much. That's, that's very much who's making this film. Yeah, yeah. Male writers and male directors, for mm-hmm. sure. So, yeah, those were the, I, I mean, I, I still, it's, you know, she has to come clean and in the eyes of her so-called good, the good men of the story, which is the part that there's sort of a smothering morality that's still very much there. But, but I did, I did appreciate the, what was going on in this film. And I appreciated that, uh, you know, how, how it could be interpreted in multiple ways, which I think brings a sophistication that you don't necessarily expect from a film from that, that era. Yeah. I think that might have to do with it coming from Paramount. It's, um, you know, I mean, every studio had its own kind of look and style and, and choice of subject matter. And it, it does seem like an odd fit for Paramount, which is a you think of the glamour of Marlena Dietrich and the romance and the heroism of Gary Cooper, two of their biggest stars. And those are the kind of things that are associated with the early days of that studio. And this film seems a little kind of out of sync. And it's kind of odd that they would uh, would go there with this material. But I, I guess uh, with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of mining similar material in a kind of a fantasy genre fashion i guess they decided that uh to take miriam down a similar road in in the story of temple drake would be a smart uh, smart move financially which i i don't think it was um and it's it's an amazing looking film uh cinematography by carl struess who worked on um Sunrise. He comes from the German Expressionist school, and there's a lot of that. A lot of characters looking through broken windows and, you know, cross uh, cross shadows on people's faces and that kinds of stuff. There's 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 a lot of uh, expressionism to be found here. So it's it's a it's a gorgeous film um, that kind of serves this story of a so-called quote-unquote fallen woman. But you, you're right. There is that kind of patriarchal morality directed at, at Temple Drake when, um, you know that that she's as much of a victim as anybody uh and uh it, it but th- th- there's also humor and darkness combined it's it's such an unusual blend of 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 tone that we wouldn't see like a year later that that everything gets kind of scrubbed up and cleaned up and and uh it's it, yeah it's kind of like the last gasp of a very brief era yeah yeah, no, but I was really, I was glad to see it. And I, I did appreciate, like I said, that there were, there were some analysis on in the story that, uh, that gave it a little more complexity than maybe I had originally thought. And and now I'm, I've been thinking about it a lot since I've, since I've seen it. Uh, so yeah, I would, I would say, you know, uh, the story of Temple Drake is something to see. Um, now, should we move on to our, our next film in our, uh, our off the shelf uh, collection? And this is one that I, suggested and it's a very hard film to find speaking of films that are 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 have been unavailable uh hear my song from 1991 written and directed by peter chesham and co-written by adrian dunbar who's one of the actors in the film he's uh, adrian dunbar is very much both of these uh, well filmmakers uh chesham is still making lots of feature films he's had a had an interesting career and uh dunbar is also working in television and in film but uh this was back in 1991 and uh i think i mentioned it briefly when we talked about irish movies way way back in the early days of this podcast and uh yeah this is um uh this is at one point in the picture a character says we're in a shaggy dog story and truer words were never <laughs> spoken uh it's ostensibly the story of mickey o Neil, played by Dunbar, is a concert promoter in Liverpool who runs a nightclub that books, acts like Frank Sinatra with uh, 
F-R-A-N-C-C-I-N-A-T-R-A. Uh, he, you know, and eventually he's trying to keep this place open and he books legendary tenor Joseph Locke, who was a real guy who had quite a career, was quite famed. But he also uh, escaped to Ireland as a tax exile years previously. Uh, and when he was a big deal in in the UK, he had in the late 50s, he had an affair with Kathleen Doyle, played by Shirley Ann Field, who I've seen a lot of in movies that you've suggested. <laughs> I know she's in the, the damned or these are the damned that yeah. we, we, we watched that for yeah. UK horror. That's right. I, I, it's funny. I've become much more familiar with her, her work. Um, she's a beauty pageant winner, but had to he had to leave her behind. And now her daughter, Nancy, played by the great Tara Fitzgerald, is Mickey's girlfriend. But his relationship, his business, it all goes belly up when Kathleen reveals that Joseph Locke, the Joseph Locke he booked, the so-called Mr. X isn't the real deal. And that sends Mickey to Ireland to try and track down the real Joseph Locke, played with real verve by Ned Beatty. Um, it's a bit of a romp. This is a lot of fun, great ensemble, and a lot of wonderful music. Uh, there's a wonderful handling of tone. Uh, it really clips along. And then um, there's a scene at the end of the second act involving a very deep well and a cow that would have been cut out of a lesser film uh, <laughs> or one of the, where the filmmakers weren't having so much fun. It's hilarious. Now, I would say watching it 30 years later, the only bum note is the moment where Kathleen reveals that she knows that Mr. X, played by um, William uh, Hootkins, who was the pilot Porkins in Star Wars and was Detective <laughs> oh, Eckhart in Batman. Uh, so he had quite a career. He Anyway, she reveals he isn't Joe Locke and there's definitely suggestion that she's been assaulted, which is a little bit glossed over, which I felt was, you know, it, it, now I just feel like that just leaves a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth. But beyond that, uh, that I think genuine misstep, this is still a wonderful film. As I said, very hard to find. I had to find a, a British DVD copy uh, and bring it over to watch it um and you know i gotta love the casting of shirley ann field and david mccallum two 60s icons in british cinema and television um anyway what did you make of it steve yeah i saw this when it came out so it was a real treat to revisit it it was a, it was a film that played at wormwoods and, and and did quite well at the time and i i remember it being a fairly popular film and i i feel like maybe it was uh, a bit of either ahead of the wave or at the very start of that kind of movement of quirky small town British Isles comedies um, that we got for for a stretch there. That right. you know, the, Finding the, Ned, Waking uh, Ned Divine, Ned Divine, uh, the Matchmaker, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. with Janine Garofalo, uh, and 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 on and on. There was a string of, of, of you know Calendar Girls. There was a string of these films that um, you know just collect an, an eccentric assortment of characters, and and it's you know it's it was a trend in film that they they did well overseas so they kept making them right up till you know sort of exotic Mary Gold hotel um you know where you just find a bunch of uh stalwart british character actors and put them in a in a story uh you know often a bit of a odds and sods grab bag kind of story but thankfully hear my song uh it is a shaggy dog story but at least it has a nice uh through line with a good focus on its characters and uh, adrian dunbar is an actor who uh i think now he does uh, like a crime series on british tv yeah, but he's an actor on the line or something i'm trying to remember the name or of it. line of duty line of duty that's it yes. um <laughs> can't quite remember my titles today <laughs> but you know it was always a pleasure to see him and he has a hand in the screenplay uh, for this film as well so you know he has a kind of an emotional investment in tara fitzgerald is wonderful um, you know, I, I didn't see her in Game of Thrones. I'm, one of these days, I'm sure I'll find myself plowing through that. But I do also remember her from Sirens, a delightful Australian comedy, and and uh, and and some other films. And uh, you know, it was just a, it was just a nice 
kind of romp through you know period Ireland. Uh, it's, it starts in I think in Liverpool, but it was actually all I think ent- entirely filmed in Ireland, apart from some uh, location shots on the Liverpool waterfront. And uh, it just has that kind of character, you know, that you go into a pub and you know there's going to be a few laughs to be had along the way, sort of thing. And uh, and Ned Beatty, uh, of course, is not a guy who often gets the chance to play a lead role. You know, you, you think of him as a, the character part or supporting role in something like, well, obviously deliverance, but, but also network and, 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 um, and the Superman films, you know, <laughs> and, and, and here he gets to play a character who's not necessarily comic relief. He's a guy who's, he's a, you know, he's a tenor, he's a singer, but he's also a little threatening. <laughs> he's a little intimidating and, and Beatty really, uh, really takes the bull by the horns, literally. Um, with this uh with this role and uh you know once he comes on the scene the the film just has this other kind of life to it and yeah it's a delightful bit of blarney but uh you know it really deserves a more widespread uh, distribution i think yeah and maybe we didn't get it because of the music i mean why would it be out of it was so well received at the time the critics liked it why why would we not have had a copy here in nova scotia or nova scotia in north america uh generally you know for so many years it's so hard to find here my song is would really i is it the music rights do you think that's the most likely suspect um you know that 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 in in itself is enough uh, to scare a potential distributor off from a film if it costs a small fortune, just to get the music. And uh, most most distributors know that they don't want to, you know, half-ass it with, you know, some of the music or dubbing over with inferior copies and that kind of thing because it uh, it never ends well. You know, you look at those first DVDs of WKRP and so on. So, uh, but you never know. Like maybe uh, Kino Lorber might take it on i think they put out chesham's follow-up film uh, funny bones so uh and this is a much better film and a much better known film so hopefully hopefully we'll see it at some point down the line all right so today on lens me your ears we are deep into our off the shelf uh edition of our uh, podcast, our film podcast, and uh, Stephen Cook and I, Karsten Knox, we're talking about movies from each other's collections, and uh, Stephen chose a movie from my collection called Doomsday from 2008. Now, this came up in our last episode when we were discussing Neil Marshall and his first film, Dog Soldiers. Now, around that time, he also helmed a horror flick called The Descent, and after Doomsday, he made a film called Centurion, which is quite worth seeing. These are all pretty entertaining genre pictures doomsday is uh is one that Stephen hadn't seen so you know we we basically got that one i got that one down off the shelf and uh it's like i get the sense marshall is uh speaking of game of thrones worked on that show so uh, so he has had uh, a quite an interesting career and done different things in film and television but uh you get the sense watching doomsday that he thought well Here's my one chance to make a horror movie, a zombie movie, a post-apocalyptic medieval car chase action movie. And so he figured he'd do it all at once. Um, It's set 25 years in the future. And due to a horrible flesh-devouring virus, Scotland has been sealed off. Uh, Back in London, though, it looks like the virus is about to return. So cue Bob Hoskins and his number one uh, tough 
agent, Rona Mitra, to command a troop of tough-as-nails warriors into Scotland to see if they can find possible survivors. They may have the uh, secret to surviving the virus. So how many blatant homages slash ripoffs did we see in the movie? So many. So many. I mean, 28 days later, and its sequel, 28 weeks later, certainly, they're mm-hmm. they're there. Um, Aliens, The Road Warrior, Thunderdome, uh, uh, Warriors, Escape from New York. John, he must be a John Carpenter fan, I'd Mr. Say, Marshall. Yeah. Um, and Ridley Scott's 80s work. You know, there's a lot of rain going on in this film. Maybe a little um, Braveheart. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> in there somewhere. Uh, it's Scotland, you know. It, it is. Uh, you know, this is a, it's actually quite a fun movie. And and once you recognize what he's doing, like, um, you know, costumes and and the way it's shot, it's 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 got a very sort of MTV friendly kind of style from the 80s, which, of course, was the style to kind of. You know, the, the style of, of, of movies, um, B movies of the time. And uh, yeah, there's a there's a great scene right in the middle where the remaining Scottish biker mutants do a big dance to the fine young cannibals. Good thing <laughs> was swiftly segueing into a can can. Um, and then comes the sword and knight stuff uh, and the inevitable Malcolm McDowell as the, the big boss. Uh, now, there is no explanation how they get the gasoline for their cars or the beer that they've been drinking 25 years after everything stopped, but who cares? I, I I found it quite an entertaining film. Stephen, what did you make of it? Well, you know, man will find a way to make beer no matter what happens. So <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Civilization will, will win in that regard. I, I quite enjoyed it as kind of a glossy B picture. Um, you know, it, it felt like something if Roger Corman had grown up in and worked in England and the sort of thing that he might've come up with maybe with a higher budget than he normally has to work with. Uh, certainly, certainly derivative. I mean, I think the descent is probably Marshall's best film uh, just because it's his most straightforward and is, you know, a great concept that doesn't necessarily rely on a bunch of things you've seen before, but it, it is kind of fun watching this and yeah, counting off the homages uh, along the way. Uh, but, uh, but I, I did like, um, uh, Rona Mitra, who plays uh, Eden Sinclair, the, the the woman in charge of the mission, I, I found that uh, kind of a, a refreshing change for this film. Uh, you know, poor Sean Pertwee gets it in a in the most horrible, horrible way, just as he did in Dog Soldiers. A uh, guy can't catch a break. Um, and of course, uh, the DVD. Uh, hopefully, uh, yours doesn't have the layer break issue that this one had, but. Uh, there is an unrated version, which is far more violent and gruesome than uh, the theatrical cut. And uh, but you know, if that's the way you want to go, that's uh, that's the way to go with a film like this. But it, it does have kind of a, a good relentless energy. I like the warring, you know, the sort of medieval gang versus the kind of punk rock kind of gang uh, aspect of it. Like you say, very warriors, uh, and uh, everybody kind of just chews the scenery with a lot of vigor. And, and they just, the, the whole thing is kind of on 11 um, pretty much from start to finish. Yeah, no, I agree. I, 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 it's, it's not a film that's when I, it's one of those movies where I watch it and then I have a hard time remembering all the details. Cause it's all just kind of a mashup of different tones, different things going on. And with all those different sort of textural elements for, uh, inspired by all these other kinds of movies, uh, that it's, it's, I find it hard to keep in my head, but if I'm in the mood for that and don't want to go back to the originals, this is a, is a reasonable, more recent replacement, I guess. Yeah, and it's not entirely predictable. It takes a few interesting twists. Of course, the initial mission goes spectacularly wrong, and uh, and and then you you got to watch uh, the surviving characters kind of claw their way out, and that's always kind of fun. Um, and again, it's very warriors, but 
you know, it, at least the things that he's ripping off are things that are worth <laughs> worth ripping off, I suppose. So, uh, again, not uh, not something that's going to change the genre that it's in, the, the whole post-apocalyptic uh, kind of mission thing. But it, it does it pretty well with a good sense of humor and uh, a lot of decent turns from its cast. Yeah. Yeah. So, OK, so uh, another film, uh, sort of a B-movie kind of fun pop culture picture, uh, but going a lot further back is Danger Diabolique from 1968, directed by Mario Bava. Uh, so, Stephen, this is one off your shelf. Do you want to tell the folks what this one's about? Well, basically, it's it's an adaptation of an Italian uh, comic book or comic strip, which uh, in the lingo is called a fumetti. So I guess in in uh, in Japan they have manga. In Italy they have fumettis, which are kind of serialized stories told in comic book form. And Diabolique uh, here, played by John Philip Law, who is the uh, the angel in Barbarella, and is I mean, he's in a ton of films. He's a you know a very busy actor around this uh, this time of, of the '60s and into the '70s. Um, and he plays uh, again with a lot of verve and gusto. He plays Diabolique, who's basically a super thief. He he wears kind of head to toe kind of leather outfit where you can only see his eyes when he's uh, on a mission. And he's got um, his uh, sidekick, Eva Kent played by Marissa Mel, a very capable uh, assistant and also his lover. This is a very, they're a very sexy couple who actually have sex, uh, which is, it's, it's kind of an interesting uh, idea to have, Oh, a superhero movie that has sex in it. Because of course the ones we get these days are, pretty sexless um <laughs> it's not a you know obviously they want to appeal to as wide an audience as possible but they kind of knew what they were doing with with danger diabolique and and uh so there's a more adult element to it or at least as adult as it could get in uh, 1968 i guess is when this came out and uh it's it's a lot of fun it doesn't take its source material too seriously but it doesn't try to camp it up too much either um i mean i don't know that mario bava is necessarily a huge fan of the source material uh you know he's basically hired by dino de Laurentiis to uh to uh pr- direct this film and uh, de Laurentiis had kind of got into a bit of trouble with barbarella which is an adaptation of another fumetti and it's the more famous film of course with with jane fonda um as the uh, astronaut or uh, space warrior who uh, you know gets into a bunch of fairly nonsensical and uh, not nonsensical nonsensible <laughs> adventures in outer space, um, you know, and it was held up with delays and cost overruns. And Bava actually brought this film in uh, not just on time but ahead of schedule and under budget. And De Laurentiis couldn't have been more more thrilled. And it, it's. It's just a fun, fast-paced, very comic booky. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm not using that as a pejorative. It it really does have the energy and spark and color of a, of a comic book, and uh, and plus, it's very much a '60s mod film with this very guitar-heavy score by Ennio Morricone that uh, really juices up the film, and you know, certainly dates it in a lot of ways. But you know, if if you want to see maybe one of the untapped influences on uh, Austin Powers. Uh, I'd say this film is, is a good starting block. And, and Diabolique is such an interesting character. He's, 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 I mean, he's out for himself, obviously. He just wants to make money, and it's heist after heist. Uh, but he also has a bit of a political agenda. He's kind of an anarchist. He wants to take down the system. And, uh, you know, there's a scene where he blows up all the tax buildings. In uh, Now, they don't say that it's Italy. Uh, it's obviously shot in Italy and a lot of Italian actors being dubbed uh, throughout the film. Uh, but I don't think the film's very specific about where it's set. But uh, but he, he also has kind of this anti-government kind of thing. And it's, it's an interesting... Uh, 
it's an interesting aspect of the film that it, it doesn't uh, spend a lot of time on, but it's, it's definitely a thread that's there. And it's definitely who is that nemesis is throughout the course of the film, the inspectors and the, the government officials who, who want to bring them down. And it's, it's just a uh, flashy and fun. And uh, I don't, I don't want to say campy. I think, Maybe it's it seems campy just because it's of its time, but it's not intentionally campy necessarily. And uh, it's, it's a lot of fun if you want to see a, a comic book uh, movie that's uh, true to its source. Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess I knew a little bit about it, but I didn't realize how into its source it was. I mean, you described it as kind of like 1966 Batman without the laughs. And when I heard that, I was actually a little dubious, but it's, <laughs> well, it's as you it, would be, it's it's a it's a lot more interesting visually than than just that. Like, obviously, Baba is a filmmaker who has a reputation for having done like great films over the over his years uh, and in a variety of genres. And this one has a really wonderful design element that I really enjoyed. Uh, it's it's also a straight ahead like James Bond spoof in some ways uh, with a little bit of that Barbarella you mentioned Barbarella thrown in for fun um, and uh, it's written you know it is in English but it really sounds like it's written by someone for whom English is a second language and I expect that's in fact the case <laughs> yeah um, well I think well Terry Thomas I think uh, who plays sort of the government minister who wants everybody to get rid of Diabolique I think he's the only guy who does his own dialogue and uh and he, they actually recorded him live on the set, which they tended not to do in Italy in those days. Usually they dubbed everything, but I guess he, he, they only had him on set for a couple of days, so they had to record his dialogue on the set. And it's so funny because his stuff sounds so much better than all the stuff that's dubbed, but that's the nature of Italian films in the 1960s, I guess. And I, I think John Philip Law does his own voice and does that crazy laugh that uh, Diabolique, uh, you know unleashes throughout the course of the film yeah and you know it's funny in the first like t i think 20 or 30 minutes diabolique laughs but otherwise doesn't have any dialogue it's like he just <laughs> goes about his business as he's being chased by helicopters and running driving his jaguar e-type into tunnels and then switching cars and then driving into his secret underground lair with eva and then having sex with eva under a pile of money <laughs> money like there is a lot of crazy stuff going on here but uh but, you know, um, and it is ridiculous and frequently sexist. Let's just get that out there. But uh, but I did like that Eva is an equal partner to Diabolique in very many respects. Like she is definitely part of the team um, and she is, you know, she she's very capable, though it doesn't take long before he has to go and rescue her, unfortunately. Um, there is another comic book connection that I only realized after watching this is that Grant Morrison, the famous Scottish comic book writer created uh, a character in the X-Men called Phantom X, who is a French mutant spy thief. He's basically <laughs> diabolique. He even has an Eva who, which is a sort of flying a saucer, an AI flying saucer. Um, and then, of course, there's the Beastie Boys video for Body Movin', which uses clips from the film uh, that is also uh, pretty well known. And in fact, uh, in the on the uh, the DVD, um, they they talk about that and show show that video. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is the kind of movie that I would have really enjoyed when I was a kid. And there is no doubt uh, it, it some of it has an age as well as as some parts of it has an age as well. But it is it is really unusual and and yeah given where comic book movies have gone superhero movies especially have gone and become so uh industry dominating in hollywood it's interesting to see one from 50 years ago that uh, comes from a european culture and and all the things as you mentioned it's much sexier 
Yeah, it's it's and it's nice to be reminded of of the source material too. Like like I remember like going to see I think it was Doctor Strange, uh, the recent one with Benedict Cumberbatch, not the terrible TV movie, uh, and uh, just and the parts that actually reminded me of a Doctor Strange comic book. And I thought, oh yes, <laughs> this is you know I feel like th- that you can kind of serve both masters as it were the 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 marvel cinematic universe and the actual source material that it is possible to do and and but you know this is an example that that you know they're not the first ones to do it um and i I believe it was also a bit of an influence on tim burton when he was making his first batman film i think the 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 batman costume and and uh some aspects of that film i think were potentially uh uh, Danger Diabolique inspired. Uh, Burton is certainly a fan of Mario Bava's films, so it's not surprising that some of that would have would have snuck in there as well. Um, so, so basically, in my notes here, I've got you know he's like Batman if Batman was an anarchist super thief essentially because he's got his cave, he's got his underground lair, which is just basically the Bat Cave. Um, and like you say, Mario Bava. I mean, Bava's films are you know generally kind of remembered for their visuals. I mean, that's, that's the thing that sticks out the most for, for those who see those films and, you know, trying to bring them to mind years later, his, his vibrant use of color, uh, his ability to incorporate special effects, uh, of the time with hanging miniatures and, and set design that, uh, that is kind of invisible. Like his, his ability to use kind of trick photography and force perspective and models and mats and, and that kind of thing. Um, you know, and that's part of the reason why he was able to bring these films in under budget so often is because he just had this brilliant imagination with bringing things to the screen for for little to no money. And and because this is a great looking film, the lair looks great. The the you know the, his safe and all these other aspects of the film uh, look amazing. And it was all done you know with uh, with with Bava's imagination just working overtime. Yeah, and there's an ending here, and I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen Danger Diabolique, but there is an ending that's sort of the final sort of uh, mission, which is involved, which involves gold uh, being stolen by our our hero thief, and then uh, being and then being and then an explosion, and uh, and and I yeah, it, it's. It's, it's <laughs> unexpected, unpredictable uh, in a way that uh, that I would love to see this be an inspiration for um, for a, a future superhero movie, because this is not I, w- I would never have predicted this is the way this would end. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm surprised that someone hasn't taken another shot at this uh, character there. Weirdly, there was a um, there was a series of Turkish films with a similar sort of character wearing a, an all black suit, but with a picture of a skeleton on it. And now I'm <laughs> blanking on the name. I feel like a, an idiot, but that was kind of like, it's, it's one sort of direct inspiration was a series of films produced in Turkey, which, um, you know, often made these kind of just haywire derivative films based on established properties. Um, but, uh, but this one obviously is still bar. Like you say, you mentioned James Bond. Uh, there's a great, scene there's an underwater kind of part of the the heist that is clearly like inspired by thunderball i think yeah for um, sure because i think this this came out like a, a year or so after thunderball uh but uh but not all not all that's terribly derivative a lot of the stuff i feel like bava was kind of bringing to the screen for the first time and it's a you know the film uh you know paramount you know put some money into it to produce it and it did get kind of a double feature kind of almost a grindhouse kind of run in North America, but it was one of those films that just, just completely vanished from sight after that, that uh, initial distribution. And it was one of those things that, you know, you'd read about in, in 
Cinefantastique and movie magazines, but couldn't actually see. So, uh, you know, it's great that it's uh, it's been given this this lease on life, and maybe maybe somebody will take another stab at it, and maybe maybe try and make it a, a period piece. You know, try and keep to uh, that kind of flavor of it. I, I would love to see like a uh, another you know because I I enjoyed those uh, the X Men movies that take place in the past, and it'd be nice to see another uh, superhero comic book property. You know attempt that uh, on, on that kind of scale again. That would be a lot of fun. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But do you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears, the film podcast that takes a look at new films and compares them to films from days gone by. Today, we're kind of doing the days gone by thing. It's off the shelf. Number three, as uh, myself, Stephen Cook, and my co-host, Karsten Knox, take a look at some films that have been sitting on our to-watch piles for a while, and uh, we kind of catch up with some of the films that we've been wanting to see uh, that we've uh, brought into our homes over the last little while. And uh, this is the third and final segment, and we're taking a look at a couple of films that are quite different, uh, and maybe their only connection is that they involve uh, the law, justice, in some form or fashion in, in, in very different ways. And uh, we're going to start off with The Seven Ups, which is an action uh, crime comedy, crime comedy, crime caper kind of film, uh, a gritty Streets of New York kind of film that uh, followed in the footsteps of The French Connection, uh, and uh, very much so in, in a number of ways. First of all, it was directed by Philip D'Antoni, who was the producer of The French Connection and also the producer of Bullet. So, of course, there's going to be a big car chase uh, at some point in the course of this movie. And it's also uh, D'Antoni's only directing job. It was a film that I think he he wanted um, uh, Friedkin, uh, who had, William Friedkin, who directed the, uh, the French Connection. He was kind of hoping he'd be on board for it. And Friedkin didn't think the story was that great and uh, didn't really want to repeat himself with another gritty streets of New York, uh, you know, crime drama. And, uh, D'Antoni thought, well, you know, I've produced a couple of these films. How hard could it be to direct a movie? So he got Roy Scheider from the French connection to star this time in the film. And, uh, he plays buddy. He's one of uh, a group of cops called the seven ups. And they're, um, they're kind of, they're supposed to be an elite squad. I don't know how elite they are, but, but they're kind of a, a group of tough, experienced and supposedly incorruptible cops who are going after kind of a, a certain level of criminal where they know they're going to uh, be able to convict them for sentences of seven years or more. So basically that's what the name implies that uh, they don't necessarily like soda pop. Um, it's in fact uh, the, the nature of the crimes they're going after and the guys they're trying to bust. And they're, so, so kind of maybe not necessarily the big kingpins, but those kind of mid-level guys who do the dirty work for, uh, for the mob and organized crime and, and other organizations. And, so, uh, and basically what happens is they stumble across a scheme where a group of criminals are kidnapping other criminals. And so the, in the theory being that they'll kidnap these other, uh, mobsters or, or crime members, and, uh, they're not going to go to the cops cause they're criminals. <laughs> why, would, why would they go to the cops? So they're, they're going to do these kidnappings and collect the ransom and, uh, the law 
doesn't have to be involved. And that's basically the theory. But of course, uh, that's not how things go. Um, you know, that there, uh, so one of these uh, kidnappings goes wrong and, uh, some, some cops get hurt. And, uh, so it's time to, uh, to figure out what this plot is all about. Uh, and it involves, uh, Roy Scheider's buddy and he's tied into it with his, uh, childhood friend who's played by Tony Lobianco, uh, Vito Lucia, who's, you know, kind of a mob affiliated guy who provides buddy with, uh, with some info from time to time and gives him, gives him some hints, uh, on some of the cases that he's working on. And it's, it's, it's a pretty great seventies crime picture. If you're looking for something along the lines of the French connection and so on, it's not on the same level. Uh, you know, D'Antoni, I think has some issues when it comes to directing actors. There's some scenes where Roy, um, is is a bit inconsistent in his performance and then i think that comes down to uh, the director it probably explains why he never directed another film after this um but it's 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 a pretty great bare bones thriller kind of picture with again with with an amazing new york city crime uh or car chase in strung out through the middle of the film uh it's not a perfect film i i feel like it could have done a better job of establishing who the seven ups uh, are and what what exactly it is they do you kind of have to figure it out yourself in bits and pieces uh through the first half of the film before it just kind of gets completely plot driven uh but but apart from that i i feel like it, it captures that kind of 70s urban uh crime atmosphere pretty well yeah i did like that aspect of it that it's it's very true to the the style and uh, genre of the 70s crime drama and there's a lot of new york street scenes shot in winter so everything's a little grittier and grimier than it would be otherwise uh and some of the sort of sleazier locations which is great i i i love the um the cast as well as as like these uh, so many meaty dudes with faces like potatoes you know and there's an excellent atonal score a lot of sounds i generally associate with horror movies, the discordant prickly strings, you know, that kind of thing. I really enjoyed that as well. And, you know, the, the, but you're right. The plot is a little opaque. You know, it's, it's about a group of mobsters who are getting kidnapped and shaken down for ransom money by an, another group of guys who got their details from a cop list. And, uh, and the, you know, the key relationship is between Buddy and his snitch, who is an old pal from the neighborhood, as you mentioned, a character named Vito Lucia you know, wanting to get some info and, and their relationship gets strained by what's going on in the city. And uh, I, I didn't think, I don't know that I liked it as much as you did generally. Like it's not a great movie by any stretch, but as an example of genre. And if you like this kind of movie, then there's no reason not to see this. Uh, Roy Scheider. I mean, let's face it. Roy, Roy Scheider looks great in that leather jacket. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's funny that his character from the French connection was called Buddy too. So there is a loose, well, a loose connection there. Ostensibly, it's the same character there there's uh, and it was it was kind of put forth as a sequel or maybe even a prequel to the french connection with scheider reprising his role but there were rights issues and they couldn't make him the same character as before so he's for all intents and purposes the same guy i i mean when you watch it you can kind of see how it could have been uh, been improved on, on a bunch of different levels in terms of maybe a, even just explaining the the setup for this uh, squad of cops or whatever like it, there are there are multiple ways that it, it it could have been a better film but i think for what it is uh, you know i i'm just a big fan of these 70s urban uh, crime dramas that are either better or lesser you know taking a pelham one two three and report to the commissioner and there's one called badge 373 i think with robert duvall that's not great but again it's robert duvall 
you know, at his prime. And, and like this, this is, you know, if you like Roy Scheider, uh, it's always great to see him in a lead role. And there aren't, uh, there aren't a ton of films that feature him in, in such a capacity. Yeah. 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 And, uh, um, it, it, and that car chase is just awesome. Like it is as, at least as good as the French connection car chase. I think, uh, I would say there's just something it's longer. You, I think. <laughs> you, you can really tell that those cars are going at breakneck speed in a way that, a lot of films these days that have car chases in them, you just don't get that same sense of like excitement because you're like, these these guys are really booking. Um, so, you know, and we should mention Roy Scheider, who was, of course, in The French Connection. And you had mentioned he's not in as many lead roles. Marathon Man was maybe where I was introduced to him. Of course, he was in Jaws, which, which was such a huge movie. And it just doesn't make sense to me that he wasn't as a leading man wasn't in more things like and you know sorcerer i know didn't do very well and all that jazz i guess was was i don't know if it was a bomb but i don't think it was a very well regarded film at the box office anyway yeah um, he's so good in that film he's yeah. so good and then you know and that's not his fault and then blue thunder was great uh the helicopter action picture from the 80s and you know he was a great supporting character in movies like the russia house which is one of my favorites so you know i just never quite understood why it wasn't why he he never got his due as a as a leading man i guess yeah last embrace directed by jonathan demi is another one to look out for it's been reissued uh a couple of times i'm sure and uh it's 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 demi's attempt to do a hitchcockian kind of thriller and, and scheider's great in that the, the the plot for that is a bit labyrinthian but but it's uh but it's an enjoyable film and like he's always watchable he's 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 got a lot of charisma and uh and has that kind of downbeat sense of humor that uh, that I like, uh, and there's the, that's certainly on display in the Seven Ups as well. Yeah, so um, we should move on now to our final film of our off the shelf uh, uh, edition. This is our third time doing off off the shelf, and it's Hunger, uh, Steve McQueen's debut after having been a uh, a, a painter and uh, a visual artist for many years and making short films. He made his feature film debut in 2008, co-written with Enda Walsh, uh, and it speaks to his interest in human rights and politics. His film is unlike most other films of its ilk. Uh, it's a granular look at the imprisoning of Irish activists in 1980 Northern Ireland and the hunger strike by Bobby Sands, played by Michael Fassbender. Um, it, it also takes its it is a very unusual prison drama, even if you can call it that. Um, it takes its time to introduce it to a prison guard, someone who seems to live a very difficult and stress-filled life. Um, we even follow him while he visits his his mother in a care facility. Steve McQueen's storytelling is very observational and very clinical, but also very physical. It's the kind of film very interested in specific detail, the prisoner's existence, the way they refuse to cooperate with their jailers, their insistence that they are political prisoners, a recognition that Margaret Thatcher government refuses to give them. Uh, and we really find out what life was like in those prison blocks. And it was awful for everybody. You see the cost of this war on both sides. Um, you know, the, the, the feeling that we get that really, but there's so little judgment. I really felt like the, uh, the, the, there's a, you know, obviously the prisoners are poorly treated, but, um, everyone in this system is a prisoner of the system. And, uh, yeah, it was, I, I just rewatching it again. I was reminded how powerful uh, the hunger was. Uh, so Stephen, what did you, this is the first time you'd seen it. What did you make of it? Yeah, this is a film I've always wanted to see. Uh, I, I don't know when and where it might've played here when it first, opened um back in uh 2008 uh but uh it was it was a sledgehammer it's 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 a heavy film but uh completely worth seeing and 
you know, I guess if we want to tie it into the, the theme of the show, of course, Steve McQueen uh, has his recent Small Axe uh, series of, of films or a, a mini series. It's, 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 I mean, they're films. They're, they're, they're not just episodes of a TV show, um, which are available through uh, Prime right now. Um, and, uh, you know, this is, this is from 13 years ago, but you can see a, a connection between hunger and the work that he's doing with Small Axe to, to, to bring to light the kind of systemic oppression in uh, in Britain <laughs> over the years, uh, and uh, obviously uh, Small Axe is focusing on the uh, the West Indian community in London, and this is focusing on the Northern Ireland community. But it's it's the same system, same government, and uh, you know, and definitely this s- systemically uh, rooted um, oppression that's been in place for for decades, uh, and and hunger doesn't really make any bones about it. I mean, there are lots of quotes from Margaret Thatcher um, sort of sprinkled throughout the course of the film. And then in the supplements, you actually see the, the footage of her saying these things, um, you know, about, uh, you know, not giving into prisoners and saying that they're all criminals and there's nothing political about what they're doing uh, and uh, that they deserve to be treated as such. And, and it's just a, such an astonishing uh, directorial feature debut, uh, you know, certainly one of the, the best I've seen. And, uh, you know, McQueen's visual eye, his ability to put you in the place, in May's prison uh, in in Northern Ireland is is, is completely remarkable. And the, the fact that he does it in, you know, just slightly over 90 minutes, you know, he, it's nothing, there's nothing feels wasted that nothing feels excessive in terms of time or, or, you know, the amount of time he dwells on things. It just, uh, it just drags you into this, uh, into this environment and pulls you right through it. Yeah, and and, and the, you know he has a, a, the camera moves a lot, and you see you get a very sort of visceral, intense kind of experience introducing all the characters. Interestingly, he does a bunch of things that you just generally that break the rules of a lot of of filmmaking and screenwriting. He his his lead character, Fastbender's Bobby Sands. He doesn't. We don't really get to know him until the second act. Like he is not the person we get to know first, um, and then. In the middle, there's a mid-movie, seventeen-minute-long shot where Leon Leon Cunningham. Uh, we've mentioned Game of Thrones already. Here's another actor that was <laughs> was prominent on that on that show, and he was in Dog Soldiers. There you go. Yeah, um, <laughs> he shows up as a priest to speak to Fassbender's Bobby Sands to try to dissuade him from his his hunger strike. And I can't think of another scene that goes that long in a movie that where the camera is locked down. Uh, it continues with Bobby telling the story of the boys and the foal in the stream. And then there's a long shot of Cunningham and then back to the two shot. But that single two shot, uh, I, I gather that uh, Fassbender wanted to be able to move out of it and like get up and move around. But, but McQueen is like, no, sit and talk. And that's what we're going to get. And if you do your job, then it'll, will it'll work. And it does work. You are just compelled by these two actors, these two characters speaking to each other, going over the particulars of their disagreement. And I, I learned, we learned from the supplements on the Criterion uh, disc that, uh, that Cunningham and Fassbender actually lived together through the course of production and, and spent every spare moment they had working on that scene and, and just getting it down because apparently Fassbender had memorized it and, you know, had it committed 
to his mind uh, before filming even started. And then Liam Cunningham shows up and asks him, like, have you learned the thing yet? And he, he finds out that he already knows it and has his own sense of how it's going to go. And then they had to kind of rework it and Fassbender had to rework it in his own mind and, uh, you know, adjust to Cunningham's own rhythms and, and um, you know, style. And, and it, it's uh, the results are, are, are pretty remarkable. You haven't really seen a scene like it and it's, you know, you, you can't turn away from it at all. It's it's such a, a a compelling conversation between these two guys who, in one sense, are on the same side or want the same thing, but want to go about it in different ways. And, you know, I was keenly aware of the hunger strike at the time that it was happening. It was certainly in international news, which is exactly why they did it. Uh, you know, that they felt that, you know, that all people were hearing about was uh, bombings and violence and, and that kind of thing. Whereas this, which wasn't doing much for their cause, it was just, you know, making the rest of the world make them seem like a bunch of violent hoodlums, which there's a case to be made. However, you know, this actually brought focus back on the political stand they were taking, uh, even though it had this horrible, horrible cost. And, you know, the film really brings that to life for me because I just remember what that was like seeing the stories uh, and counting down the days of the, the 66 days that it took for uh, for Bobby Sands to starve to death. And, and this film doesn't, you know, leaves you with no illusions about how that went down. Yeah, yeah, it is very gruesome, actually, in the end. And, you know, uh, full marks to Fassbender for the physical commitment to to losing weight you know he was i think 170 pounds to start with he's about six foot and he got himself down to i think 130 pounds so uh you know and that physicality is very much part of the final act of the film you know it reminds me of christian bale and the machinist it's that kind of commitment and uh and along with makeup and the way that the film is shot and the way that the camera moves with the the bird's uh wings uh, yeah it's it becomes quite poetic in its final act in a way that surprises yeah this is a this is a wonderful film and and uh you know it's no wonder that's that steve mcqueen has gone on from strength to strength uh with his feature films uh because it was all there right at the start And that wraps up another Lends Me Your Ears. I hope you enjoyed this third installment of Off the Shelf and and maybe learned about some films you might want to try and seek out. Here My Song might be the, the difficult one to, to nail down, but uh, hopefully it will uh, make an appearance again in physical media or streaming somewhere down the line. Thanks very much for joining us. I'm Stephen Cook, and uh, you can find me online on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. Yeah, and I'm Karsten Knox, and uh, my Twitter handle is named after my blog, flaw in the iris and lends me your ears is also on twitter and we're also on facebook we have a page there if you want to leave a comment or send a question or uh, uh, anything else you might want to send our way that would be great and of course as always thanks to the folks at ckdu 88.1 fm where they air the show every other tuesday at 5 30 p.m and also for the use of the studio which we are back in for the second show in a row and it feels great to be here in the same room with Karsten, on the mic, in the headphones. It's uh, it's a real pleasure to be back here. And Woo-hoo! thank you to everyone who supported CKDU during the recent Sustainer Drive. Uh, it was a, a great boost to the station. And, of course, you can always support CKDU all year round. Go to ckdu.ca if you want to donate some money or become a, a monthly sustainer or in any way that you, you want to support the station. 
And also thanks to the Village Soundcast Network, who make us sound real good and get us up on all the podcast platforms where you can download the show at your leisure and check out uh, some of the back uh, back episodes. And also, if you uh, if you're on iTunes, you can go there and leave a rating and a review. That would be great as well. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next time. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.